Hey listeners, Jonathan here. I'm dropping in on the back catalog of episodes to let you know about a very special workshop that I'm putting together in April for fans of Mindful Money. In this workshop, I'm going to be covering the path to financial independence, or what we used to call retirement. I want to show you how to create an income stream that rises to meet your rising cost of living and lasts the rest of your life. I want to show you how to build a simple, resilient portfolio that requires the least worry and effort. This is how I manage my own money. And I want to show you how to manage and adjust income through a life of rising costs and volatile market. And as per usual, we're going to bring uh, the focus back around to those things we know add to happiness and support well-being when you do finally reach financial independence. You can register at the link below, courses.mindful.money forward slash mindful dash retirement dash review dash workshop. Thanks. I hope to see you in class. I think the important thing that a lot of people need to really look at is you know, earning passive income with a side gig. You know, I told my wife, right? Right. I told my wife and I told a couple of other folks, right? When I started Time Value Millionaire, one of the goals, you know, you obviously want to make a little money off of it. I'm not expecting to, you know, be a millionaire off it. But, you know, I told my wife when we were in the hospital, when, you know, our kid was a couple hours after they you know, they were delivered and, you know, all healthy. I'm like, we were earning money from our website, and I was there experiencing the life of my, you know, the birth of my first child. And that really resonated with her. And, you know, she's been a real big proponent of having me work on the website. Do you think money takes up more life space than it should? On this show, we discuss with and share stories from artists, authors, entrepreneurs, and advisors about how they mindfully minimize the time and energy spent thinking about money. Join your host, Jonathan Dio, and learn how to put money in its place and get more out of life. Hello and welcome on this, the 17th episode of the Mindful Money Podcast, our first episode of season two, where our focus is gonna be on the first rung of the money ladder, earning. I wanted to talk with someone who found a passion and is already in the middle of creating a side business based on that passion. Now, I happened upon Matthew, the creator of the Time Value Millionaire blog, in my regular sort of fire blog readings. Matthew's not in the financial services world, but his writings really resonated with me. And on his blog homepage, I found the following comment, and I totally agree. Talking about money should not be taboo, and a little more knowledge today can translate into more wealth tomorrow. So here's to offering a little bit more knowledge. Matthew, welcome to the Mindful Money Podcast. Great to be here, Jonathan. All right, I'm excited to have you. So just real quick to get us kicked off, uh, where are you connecting from? Yeah, so thank you again for having me on. I'm connecting from South Florida. We live in a small coastal town about two hours south of Orlando. Okay. And did you grow up there or did you grow up someplace else? So I come from a military family. I've actually lived all across the United States and we actually lived in a couple international countries as well. But we've lived in Missouri, Michigan, a couple cities, different cities in Florida. Spent the majority of my life in Florida, but we also were in South Carolina and one of the countries we were, my father was stationed in was Japan. So we spent a little time there too. Cool. Are you, so Naval? Air Force. Air Force. Yeah. My dad was a civilian in the Air Force and you know, he, they didn't, because he's a civilian, they didn't move us around, but he was at Ellsworth Air Force Base basically from when I was 15 to until when he retired. Okay. Awesome. Um, yeah. He cleaned up, cleaned up spills next to Air Force bases because he, you know, he was an environmental engineer anyway. Right. My dad, I think he did like more support for all the different planes. So, you know, 
they would be stationed at the plane, you'd learn everything about the plane, and then you would go ahead and fix the plane after, you know, any type of mission that they had going on. Hey, did you have any, like, unique, do you think any unique money lessons as a child tied to moving around or tied to your dad being in the Air Force? Well, actually, no, because, you know, growing up, you know, being in a military family, it was very, you know, command-oriented, you know, it was very militaristic driven household, you know, you had your chores, you did your chores, you know, no questions asked, kind of like that. And, you know, we actually didn't talk a lot about money growing up. I would, you know, learn about a little bit of budgeting or how to balance your checkbook, you know, when that was still a thing. But it was mostly, you know, I didn't know much about money until I actually went to school and got my Bachelor of Science in Finance. But prior to that, I had no idea what was going on. Didn't know what the stock market was, didn't know how to invest, didn't know what a dividend was. It really was a blank slate. So how did your, I, I totally understand the command structure. I get that very, very well. But your experience as a kid with your parents, did they talk about money in front of you? Did you, do you remember any experiences that sort of formed a foundation of your early money story? So that kind of goes back to what, you know, what I have on my homepage on the blog where, you know, growing up money truly was a taboo topic back then. Mm. I mean, we really did not talk about it at all. And you know, I think I'm one of the lucky ones because I did go to school for finance specifically. So, you know, I'm a little bit smarter than I was back in the day, but it really was, the, I guess the big lesson I got from childhood was, you know, that talking about money, it shouldn't be that sensitive a topic. You know, we just had our a newborn enter our family a couple months ago and, you know, we've already set up an account for her. We already have talked about how we're going to, you know, be very candid and explain, you know, financial concepts to them once they grow up and, you know, have that honest uh, conversation. Because I think a lot of the problems nowadays is, you know, with I think personal finance is like as a course, it can only, it's only taught and like mandated by like 14 different states at this point. Right. And so I think a lot of people, you know, they don't have, you know, whether you go to college or not, or whether you, no matter what career path you choose, you know, money's always going to be that factor that, you know, thread that ties everything together. Ta everyone's going to do taxes. Everyone's going to have to learn how to budget. Everyone's going to kind of know how to set up their retirement. And so, you know, I guess where I'm going with this is, you know, there wasn't a lot of education growing up. And we kind of hope that, you know, with our kid in particular, we're able to give them the knowledge they need so that whatever path that they take, you know, they're financially prepared and they're not, you know, getting their financial advice from, you know, TikTok or, some random right. post on Reddit, you know, that's always the fear is, hey, buy the stock and put all your, you know, lifetime savings in it. And then, you know, it's a pump and dump scheme. And so that's really the lesson is, you know, to always be open and honest, kind of what I didn't get as growing up as a kid to just have that open and honest conversation. It really doesn't need to be the taboo subject. I think that yeah. it used to be 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Can, just briefly, can you give us a sketch of your career path? I realize you're still kind of in the early parts of it, but uh, just Tell us briefly about like the main gig and then how did you decide to start a fire blog as your side gig? Yeah, sure. So six years ago, I graduated from the University of Florida. I always thought I was going to go into medicine and, you know, one day I went to go take a biochemistry test and I got the lowest grade I could possibly ever imagine. I got a 12, which I think, you know, statistically speaking, if you were randomly guessing on each question, you're at least guaranteed a 25. So I was, uh, you know, I kind of took that as a sign from the universe. Uh, that was right after, uh, or that was leading up into winter break. So, you know, I had a good long talk with myself and I'm like, you know, what do I want to do? You know, what really interests me? And I think I remember 
when I went home, I think that was when Wolf of Wall Street came out. And, uh, you know, I, I watched that movie and I'm like, that, you know, not that lifestyle interested me at all. It was just the whole, that kind of introduced me to, you know, what the stock market is, or at least a section of the stock market. So I'm like, you know, that's interesting. And then, you know, having that introspection with myself, I'm like, you know, I really don't know that much. So, you know, I said, hey, you know, even if I don't go into finance, even if I don't go into financial services, you know, I could at least graduate, you know, get a degree in finance and I kind of know what I'm doing. So I switched my uh, degree to finance and I never looked back. I fell absolutely in love with the topic. But about the time when I uh, graduated, there wasn't a lot of uh, financial jobs that I was interested in in Florida because I really wanted to stay in Florida. Florida's, you know, my home. I've spent majority of my life here. So, you know, I'm, I went to a career fair one day and then, you know, the company that I work for now, we had a good interview. They said, hey, we'll bring you on as a project manager. And so upon graduation, you know, I took everything that I learned from the last three years and flushed it down the toilet from a career perspective and went into a completely different field. So then I, yeah, I've been in project management since 2016 and uh, for a relatively large company. And, you know, it was that first month that I remember going there and I was so excited and so happy. And then I just realized, you know, this is just a drudge, you know, going in day out, going in the cubicle day in and day out. And it just really wasn't sitting with me. So I was on Yahoo News one day and, you know, sometimes they do those showcasing articles. And I saw this one blog post by a blogger by the name of uh, My Money Wizard. I think his name is Sean who runs it. And he was talking about how he saved $100,000 by the age of 25. And he was talking about you know, the income he made, he was talking about his expenses. And, you know, I read that article and I'm like, you know, him and I were pretty similar in age, we're pretty similar in income. We got pretty similar expenses, similar lifestyle. I'm like, you know, if he was able to do it by 25, why can't a, you know, regular guy like me do it? So, you know, I, at that point, I put Excel on my computer, started building out some models, started tracking out my expenses. And that's when I really fell in love with the whole idea of financial independence and being able to you know, kind of this idea of buying your freedom back and you being in control of your freedom, your destiny. So, you know, at that point, you know, it was so much fun to, you know, look at your different savings rate, look at your investments, look at the dividends you have coming in, you know, what percent fire are you this month versus next month? And how does that track from month to month to month? So I did that for a couple years, I think from 2016 to 2019. And at that point, I'm like, you know, I want to share what I've learned. I want to share the similar passion similar to how Sean, you know, shared or was showcased in that one article. So from then I'm like, you know, let's grab a domain, let's start writing about some of the stuff and, you know, never looked back since. So in a minute, I want to talk about some of the sort of the, the business of content. But before we get there, the reason I originally reached out to you is because of a series of blogs you put or posts that you did in January of this year. You sort of defined. So I've been watching the fire movement for a long time. I've been reading tons and tons of different blogs, you know, Mr. Money, Mustache, you know, Jay Money. All, I've read all these guys for a long, long, long time, you know, a decade plus. And you did something that I thought was really unique in that you actually described and compared four different levels of fire, you know, barista, coast, lean, and fat. Could you just uh, like summarize those for us? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the big thing that turns a lot of people off from the idea of financial independence or early retirement is people kind of look at it as a static equation where, you know, there's a static number of variables and the variables are going to be the same no matter what you look at. But at the end of the day, there are different, you know, you can tweak it to whatever your life is. The whole idea of financial independence is, you know, building the life you want and then saving for it. You know, you don't have to do it 
you know, the same way John down the street does or Jane, you know, on Facebook does it. There's many different variations of it that you can actually pursue that, you know, better fit your lifestyle. You know, you don't have to go for early retirement. You don't have to, you know, retire when you're 30. It's really about, again, building that life that you want to live and then saving for it. And so that's the kind of idea with those series of posts is, you know, there are many different variations of financial dependence that might work better for others. You know, there's, you know, to go into them, right, there's lean fi where, you know, that's where you have enough investments just to cover your, you know, essential expenses. I like to think of it like a basic safety net so that, you know, if you were to get laid off, you don't have a problem meeting, you know, your basic budgetary requirements. And if, you know, you're more of a minimalist or you're more of a, you know, nomadic lifestyle, you know, you might not have that many expenses. So lean fire might be, you know, hey, I just need to cover my essential expenses. Then you have, you know, regular FI, which, you know, that's the one that everyone automatically thinks of where that's just covering your expenses associated with your lifestyle today. And again, maybe your expenses in retirement will be more than what they are today. Maybe they'll be less. You know, what you don't, you kind of don't know until you've had a few years of data what your lifestyle inflation rate is. So, you know, if it's less, hey, it could be more a lean fire approach. If it's more, well, then you're getting into the fat fire, you know, realm where that's saving enough money to cover expenses with a higher standard of living. You know, a lot of people associate that with luxury and being able to travel. But, you know, someone who's pursuing lean fire, right, they might not want to, you know, have a $20,000 vacation every year. Maybe like a one time, you know, 2000 vacation works for them, whereas a fat fire lifestyle is, you know, you have a lot more money to spend, again, whether that's travel or whether that's, you know, you're in a area that's in a higher cost of living. And then you get into the other types of fire too. You have barista fire where that's where, you know, you're really just trying to cover, it's having enough investments to cover your expenses and kind of supplemental and supplementing your income by having a different type of job, you know, a lower stress job. So, you know, let's say your burn rate is 40000 a year, right? If you can cover $20,000 in expenses from your investments, well, you only need to make twenty grand to be able to cover the rest of that. So instead of working that, you know, 80, 90 hour a work week, you know, go do something that you enjoy. You know, it only makes twenty grand, but you're pulling twenty grand from your investments. And if your burn rate is 40, you know, mathematically, you're able to work it out. And, you know, barista is for those folks who really want to quit the rat race early and be able to, you know, maybe pursue a passion that doesn't pay 100% of the bills, but, you know, they get that enjoyment out of it. And then I think the last one we talked about in those posts were, was Coast Fire, where that one's kind of interesting too, where, you know, you save up to a specific amount and then because of the power of compound interest, you know, you don't have to save any more to hit whatever your, your FI number is. You know, you can invest for 10 years from, you know, age 22 to 32 and, you know, maybe you say that you want to be financially independent by 65. Well, you know, you save really hard in those 10 years and then you don't have to save another nickel and through the power of compound interest, you'll be able to hit whatever your financial independence number is by whatever age you want. So really, you know, and there's these newer kinds out there that a lot of people are talking about, like Chubby Fire, Flamingo Fire. You know, I'm not really into a lot of these variations, but really those are the four or five ones that those are the... I would say the four to five main variations of financial independence. Yeah. And then sort of to cap it off in this, so those were all January. And then like at the, I think the last post in January, you said something like the post was, what was the post? It was something to the effect the ultimate goal is becoming a time millionaire. And uh, you say achieving financial independence can result in recouping millions upon millions of seconds back into your life bank. Now, 
I got to tell you, when I read that, it got to me. So can you, what is a time millionaire? Yeah, no, I mean, a time millionaire, as I define it, as someone who measures their wealth in terms of how much free time you have to do whatever you want, right? We, I think, again, when we talk about financial independence, when we have that conversation on achieving financial independence, you know, we usually talk about money and we usually talk about, you know, we need a million dollars by 40 or we need $5 million by 55. You know, we talk about money, 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 money. And that's an important, again, piece of the equation. But really, that's kind of, again, a lot of people, they'll chase the number, but then they won't ask themselves, well, why am I chasing that number? What's the point? You know, when I hit that million, $5 million one day, you know, what is it all for? And really, it's all for, you know, to have the time that you want to do, right? I, did, I think in that post, I did the math on, you know, my current age. And let's just say, you know, I live till I'm 79. I'm working 40 hours a week and I'm working till I'm 65. And I think I did the calculations where, you know, even though I'm 26, I think, I'm, well, I'm 27 now, even though I was 26 at the time of writing that, you know, my between if you take out sleeping, if you take out all the chores that I got to do, if you take out all the, you know, traveling between work and all that, if you take all of that out, despite me being 26, I've already lived half my life. And so that was really an eye-opening, you know, calculation, an eye-opening post for me because I'm like, wow, like, you know, you think you have all this time and you really don't. And again, we're talking about in the context of a lifetime, what's the point of having the money if we don't have the the necessary time, you know, okay, you retire at 65, 70, but you know, at that point, what do you have like a year left of actual life? And then what's the quality of that life? So, you know, try to get as much time back as much as possible and to be able then to use that time to live the life that you want. Yeah. You know, how important is it in your opinion that people have like some kind of their own gig, whether it's a side gig or whether it's the main stage gig in the process of building wealth for themselves and for their family? Why do you think that's an important thing? Oh, absolutely. You know, I think when you think about your traditional W-2 job, how much control, you know, if it's if we're talking about like a non-sales gig and on, you know, you're not selling anything, right? If you're talking about your traditional eight to five, how much control are you really in terms of how you're able to grow your active income, right? So, you know, active income being, hey, I spent an hour of my life doing something and I'm being rewarded $7 an hour, $10 an hour, $15 an hour, whatever. You know, our ability to increase that number, our per hour rate is, at the end of the day, you don't have control over that. You know, you might have a good quarter, you might, you know, completely bust your ass at work. You could be, you know, delivering a hundred times more widgets than before you were there. But at the end of the day, you don't really see a nickel of that money. I mean, you might, but again, you're kind of hoping and praying that, hey, you know, my boss saw what I was doing. You know, I hope that the budget is good. I hope they give me the money. And honestly, I think when in terms of building wealth, you know, active income is nice in terms of having a nice, you know, foundation. You know, you're saving your 20, 30 percent every month or year. But I think really where the money, I think the important thing that a lot of people need to really look at is, you know, earning passive income with a side gig. You know, I told my wife, right? All right. I told my wife and I told a couple of other folks, right? When I started Time Value Millionaire, one of the goals, you know, you obviously want to make a little money off of it. I'm not expecting to, you know, be a millionaire off it. But, you know, I told my wife when we were in the hospital, when, you know, our kid was a couple hours after they you know, they were delivered and, you know, all healthy. I'm like, we were earning money from our website and I was there experiencing the life of my, you know, the birth of my first child. And that really resonated with her. And, you know, she's been a real big proponent of having me work on the website because 
again, the fact that I'm not trading my time for money. I was there to, you know, witness the birth of my child. And, you know, I look at, you know, my account and I'm like, oh, I got paid that day. You know, I got paid for work that I've already, you know, put in the work for. It's a tremendous thing. And I think that type of wealth, you know, whether, you know, that kind of side gig, it, the versus active income, it's exponential. The money that I've earned from the blog since I've started it, you know, it's an exponential growth pattern. There, and the only thing that's stopping me is me, right? I'm the one who says, you know, if I want to make 10% more, well, if I put in the work, I can see that versus if I did it, if I had a W2 active income job, there's nothing guaranteeing saying that I'm going to get a 10% bump in my salary. Right. You're sort of at the, you're sort of at the, uh, the whim of your boss or your management or, you know, the company didn't do well this year. So we're not doing any raises. Right. Uh, even if you're killing it, even if you're putting in 80 hours a week and you're doing the best job you can, you can't, you know, actively boost your own income. I think though, I mean, if we're honest, right, I ran a business for 25 years before I merged my firm into a larger firm, but it didn't, my additional hours of work didn't always translate into higher income. Like some of the additional hours were spinning my wheels, like frankly, like I tried a bunch of stuff that didn't work, but the idea is you learn, you shifted your direction, you were flexible in the approach, you learned a little bit more, you tried something new and ultimately... I was able to increase my income. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at. It's in your control. You've got to push through the challenges, but it's in your control. Absolutely. And I, you know, I look back at some of the original blog posts I've written and I'm like, I seriously wrote that, you know, and it's, uh, you know, sometimes you don't do the correct research or you don't write something that, you know, really jives with people. And like you said, you kind of rinse, learn and repeat. You, I think the important is being agile and being agile to the data that you have to make those better decisions. Because again, I look back at what I wrote versus what I write now. And I know that what I write now is definitely, you know, it can be better, but it's, you know, you're constantly improving, you know, the kind of content that you're putting out. What have you learned by running a business? Well, so to be honest, I honestly think that blogging, I think that represents the ultimate business model, in my opinion. I mean, if you look at it, or if I look back at my business, right? I have like a 99% profit margin, right? I have domain hosting once a year that I have to pay. Other than that, I get all the revenue associated with whatever money that I earn. I've learned that, you know, a lot of people are chasing social media. They're trying to do the quick hits of trying to get huge, you know, nice short-term results, but then they're putting their heads in the sand on what their long-term strategy is, right? So, you know, you might write a guest post for somebody else, or you might, you know, share something on social media and it goes viral. And again, it's nice to see that. Everyone loves seeing, you know, increase in hits. But a lot of people, I think, don't look at the long-term strategy of, you know, learning proper SEO or search engine optimization. So if you're just playing for the long-term game like I am, you know, I'm not really huge on social media, but I can guarantee that I'm going to get X amount of hits per day because since the beginning, since I've been writing on the blog since 2019, I've had SEO, I've had long-term, the long-term strategy in mind, and that has paid huge dividend. So I'll see some bloggers say, you know, oh, we had a huge drop in traffic this month. And I'm like, huh, didn't really impact me. So, you know, it's nice to have that free recurring traffic because, you know, as I have, as I have a consistent, stable viewership, you know, then you have income from ads. And then there, then also a lot of people don't talk about is, you know, the fact I have zero employees. I'm the only employee. So again, I don't have to pay any overhead. I don't have to pay any employees. I write everything. So again, all that money's coming directly into my pocket. And then Again, I think with blogging in particular, from a scalability perspective, it's definitely in a close to infinitely scalable business where, again, if I write one post a month, right, 
I might not do the best, I might not grow as fast, but if I put in the work and put five to ten posts out, you know, I can scale it up or down based on the level of effort I, I put into it. So in my opinion, mm-hmm. I think a lot of people should consider, you know, starting their own blog. But when I say that, SEO is a really, it's a long-term game. It's a lot of people, you know, it's evolution, right? People, if you don't see instant results, you're going to, you know, pivot to something else. Whereas, I don't know, it's, I think that's the biggest thing is just always having the long-term in mind. And if you do that, you'll always win. You know, as long as you're consistently executing, it doesn't matter. I think you're always going to pull that ahead. Got it. You know, I think that's all a very good backdrop. And I mentioned sort of before we started that, you know, I've worked with wealthy people my whole career and I started Mindful Money to kind of share the lessons I've learned with those that are just starting to build wealth. And this season at the Mindful Money podcast is really about that earn rung of the financial ladder. So can we go into a little bit more depth about the business of the Time Value Millionaire? Like I kind of understand how you selected FIRE, but did you, by the way, FIRE is a finish independent, retire early for anyone that doesn't know what that acronym stands for. Did you consider anything else at all when you were starting the blog? So when you're talking, are you talking about choosing the topic specifically? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there, depending on the niche that you select, there is different, you know, profitability, you know, one niche might be more profitable than the other. So as an example, like if someone wants to start a gun blog, you know, a lot of advertisers, that would be considered a sensitive topic and a lot of people won't want to advertise on your website. So, you know, with the sensitive topic like alcohol, gambling, firearms, you know, those types of blogs are actually very, I mean, unless you have the high volume, unless you have the high traffic, it really doesn't make any sense to go into like a sensitive topic, you know, deemed by Google to do stuff like that. Now there's other, there are definitely more profitable blogging niches and, you know, financial independence, you know, the whole personal finance one is a profitable niche. It does tend to pay some of the higher ad rates in the business. You know, a lot of the health, health is another big one. So, I mean, it that actually didn't have anything to do with me starting the business. You know, I was just passionate about financial independence at the time. And then once I did my research on like the ad payouts and ad networks, I'm like, wow, I guess I lucked out that I really like money because, you know, that it tends to pay more than usual, more than what the, you know, ad average is. So, so when you started, you had the topic, your topic was already in mind. You weren't doing this to make a bunch of money, but it was a nice, like, it was nice to fight, figure out, Hey, if I write about fire, which is something I want to write about anyways, I'm going to make some money. So how did you start out? What was the process of, you know, take us back to, I guess, 2018, 2019, when you were like, I'm going to write about this stuff, like this guy I read on Yahoo. How did you begin? So my initial vision, again, I didn't really have money in mind when I started. The initial vision was I wanted to provide a resource on the internet to people who, you know, I wanted somebody to be able to read something and say, wow, I relate to that or I didn't know about that. And also, you know, I started the blog kind of as an accountability, accountability to the readers. So, you know, if I, you know, spent a lot of money one month or if the market, you know, went down, you know, just really kind of show that, hey, you know, I think a lot of people, they'll go to like a, a personal finance blogger and they'll say, oh, he's already, they're already, you know, 100%, you know, I'm just discovering them for the first time. You know, I can't really relate to that. But to have, you know, consistent accounting of somebody who is close in age, close in income, close to, you know, maybe in the same state and to see how they're doing it in the baby steps they're doing it. That's kind of what I was wanting to go for was have those financial updates that show, you know, it's a process, you know. A lot of people, I think, you just wake up and, you you know, these people, you know, they won the lottery. But, you know, for me, I have been dollar cost averaging since 2016, and that's all I've done, right? I'm not into those get-rich-quick schemes. It's 
if you are consistent with some of these small steps that you can do today, you know, put a hundred bucks in your IRA or up your 401k contribution. You know, I think showing things like that over time, it helps show people proof that, hey, you know, instead of saying, ah, yeah, I got a million dollar net worth, it's, okay, no, this guy did small things. I can track it from when he first started documenting it in 2019. And if I do something similar, you know, it's really not that difficult. So I started the blog with that accountability in mind and to show others that, you know, I think it gets intimidating when people say, again, I have a million dollar net worth. I, you know, make $500,000 from the blog a year. I think, you know, those types of unrealistic expectations, if I were to see that, I'd be like, well, I, I can't really relate to that versus how you are slowly and consistently, you know, building wealth because that's how you do it, right? I mean, sure, could you win the lottery? Sure. But if you're talking about a surefire way to be wealthy one day, it's doing those baby steps, those, you know, the non-sexy stuff that, you know, you don't see in, you know, articles. You always see the clickbait stuff that says, you know, oh yeah, you know, we got this big inheritance. It's like, no, you can, if you take it slow and steady and you trust the process, you know, you'll be rewarded one day. And yeah. So, and I've noticed that as a feature of the fire, as of many fire blogs is they will when, once a month, once a quarter, sometimes they'll have a, like an active graphic on the website that just that talks about, you know, their percentage fire or, you know, their report back, this is our current net worth, or this is, and I've noticed that as a feature across many of these. And I've always sort of hesitated to do that myself just because, you know, it's like reporting on your net worth or reporting mm -hmm. on, you know, your percentage fire. It's almost, well, it's very private. I mean, you and I talked about, you know, the reason we're not on cameras because there's a desire to remain a little bit anonymous behind the blog. And I totally get that. So I want to go back to that question. When you said, I'm going to start this blog, what were the steps? Like, how did you, you mentioned, pick the URL, then what? Like, what did you do next? How did you get going? Yeah, so, I mean, it, starting a blog has never been easier than it has in the last couple of years. You know, you just go to any website, any domain host. You, you know, I use Bluehost. That's who I've been using since 2019. You know, there's other ones like SiteGround and some other bigger ones that when you have a lot more traffic, you know, that helps in terms of performance. So, yeah, I just went to... Bluehost, I grabbed myself a URL for I think it was like 12 bucks a year or something at the time. And then from there, I installed uh, WordPress, which is the most popular and the easiest to use kind of blogging software onto the URL. And then from there, you know, you pick your theme, you pick at, you know, you build your logo, you upload your logo, and then you kind of do all that web development where you're kind of building it to what you want to do. And then from there, you know, WordPress, there's a big old plus button and you just create a blog. And then once your blog post, once you have it done, then you hit publish, and then you rinse and repeat. I think blogging as a business, though, I think a lot of people, and you know, myself included, I definitely made the mistake in the beginning. You care about like what font do you use, or what size do you want to use, or you know, if you tweak the logo to look like this, and you know, people are really going to care about that. And I'm not saying that you know have an ugly blog, but if you get something that is you know, decently looking, I think a lot of people like to focus on the business, the fun part. I mean, I consider that fun stuff, but. Once you create it, you know, your success or failure is going to be determined by how many times you hit that plus button and then publish, plus publish, plus publish, plus publish. That is the single factor in terms of whether you're going to succeed in blogging or not, if you can consistently publish. Again, I made the mistake. I, I booked Time Value Millionaire back in 2016, I think, is when I booked the domain. I, and I sat on it for three years because I was so scared of, oh, it's not perfect. It's not you know, when you click here, it doesn't look right. And I think in 2019, when I published my first post on November 30th, you know, the week prior, I'm like, you know, enough is enough. I told myself I'm going to do this blog and I'm going to, you know, 
share the accountability. I'm going to do. I'm going to execute my vision for it. I'm not going to let these little minor things hold me back. And then I started. But I mean, it's that's really how it began. Is I sat on it for three years. I was scared of failure. I was scared of people not liking what I had to say. I was scared. I mean, it. And then you know, in 2019, again, I had enough. And then I hit published on my first blog post, and I haven't looked back since. So what are your, what do you use as like the metrics of success now? What is it that you measure? So that's the other thing is for me personally, I measure success in terms of how much I'm able to publish. I think when people start blogging or people want to start a content related business, you know, their first, you know, I remember telling my parents about the first time and they're like, well, how many hits did you get? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, not that many, but you know, that's not a metric I can control, right? It's, I can't control whether I'm going to have 10,000 pages. I can't control whether I'm going to have 15,000 sessions. I can't control my, you know, those are things beyond my control. When you're doing an SEO-focused strategy, a lot of people like to focus on the page views, the sessions, when in reality, those are outputs of the process, which the process that you should be measuring yourself against is something within your control. So from my perspective, I measure my success on how many quality blog posts that I can publish in a month. That is the only thing that is within my control. And so that should be the only thing I grade myself against. I mean, there was a huge uh, May update, May Google core update, and my page views got cut in half. And, you know, I got really bummed out. And I'm like, well, well, did I do something wrong? What happened? And, you know, I just kept publishing. I'm like, you know, whatever. I'm just going to ignore it. Let's see what happens. And I kept publishing. And my, you know, my page views went back to their normal levels. They're actually a little bit above before that, uh, before the May core update hit. And so, you know, a lot of people would have looked at that, you know, 50% decline and been like, wow, I really suck. I really, you know, I did a terrible job with this blog and then they'll quit. But you need to compare yourself to the metrics that you can control. The fact there's going to be fluctuations. It is what it is. But at the end of the day, you can't control how many hits that you have in a month. It should be focused on the output that you can control. So I, I preach this to clients all the time, the things you control, your savings rate, you don't control markets, you, you control your savings rate, you control your sort of reactivity to markets, you don't control markets, right? But I love that. But th- does that mean that the only thing you do is you hit plus and then hit publish, you know, hit plus, write something good and then publish? Or are you also saying, you know, to these other fire bloggers, hey, you know, check out this new post? Are you doing anything to spread the word? Or is it just you write and people find you? So I have a small Twitter, and by small, I mean I think I have like 10 followers on there. And like I just started getting active on it a couple days ago, actually. But I publish. The thing is, you know, I don't just blindly do the plus publish, plus publish. You know, there's, I think when you're writing a post, like 80% of it is doing your research up front to make sure that it actually fits in with your long-term strategy. It's fitting in. So from an SEO perspective, is this something people are actually searching for? Is this something that can actually provide me that free reoccurring traffic on a you know monthly, yearly basis? So to be honest, yeah, I don't do any form of outreach. All I mean, I just started this program where I'm really big into data visualizations. I use a program called Tableau, and I'll make data visualizations for folks. You know, if for other fire bloggers who want to visualize data a certain way. But in terms of outreach, I mean, that's about it. Because I know that based on the research that I do in six months from now, I should be able to hit a certain amount of increase in page views just based on my research. So, you know, there one part of blogging is, you know, you want to write with your passion, but then you also, you know, the other thing that you have to keep in mind is you have to serve the SEO master. You have to keep that in mind. Otherwise, you know, if I posted a post saying, you know, why I love my golden retriever, 
you know, no, why, who, who, I guess if you like Golden Retrievers, you would like that, but that's not the type of content that provides value to a customer. I mean, when you're writing for SEO, you're really trying to, when you have somebody hit your website, you want them to go away and say, ah, you know, I, you, they had that aha moment. They learned something. They have something that they can apply to their lives. And so there's definitely a lot of research that goes into it. But yeah, I don't do any outreach. I just strictly focus on SEO and it has worked substantially uh, since I've implemented that. So it blows me. I mean, I'm kind of impressed with myself right now because I found you. Like, and maybe it's just because I read a lot of fire blogs, but you've only been doing it for three years. You know, and I somehow ran across you maybe probably a year, nine months ago. So I'm impressed with myself to have found you. I'm still a little shocked and frankly, just a little doubtful about, you know, the ability to just write great posts. So I guess here's my question. I'm trying to formulate this. You talked about WordPress. You talked about Tableau as tools. You've also mentioned that the SEO is really important or writing for SEO is really important. How, you know, what are the tools you're using to determine what that SEO is? Like, how are you researching to determine, hey, these are the kinds of things people are searching for? How do you find that out? Yeah, so everyone's process is a little bit differently, is a little bit different. What I have found success with, you know, th there are tools. When I first started Time Value Millionaire, Ahrefs is a good tool. It's spelled A-H-R-E-F-S. They have a, you know, seven-day, $7 free trial where you could do that type of analysis, SEO analysis, to understand what underserved topics there are. So there, I used that in the beginning, but, you know, after that seven $7 trial, you know, it was 189 bucks a month. And, you know, with me trying to keep things as lean as possible, wanting to increase the profits of the business, you know, obviously I'm not going to do that for a long term. So it was nice to get me started for a couple months to have topics. But really, you know, the process, it's as simple as I think I, what I'll do is I'll have a book next to me at all times, you know, whether I'm going to work or whether, you know, I'm just sitting at home and, you know, my wife and I were watching How I Met Your Mother or something like that. I'll have my little book next to me and I'll think of an idea and I'm like, oh, that'd be, that'd be kind of interesting. And so what I'll do is, you know, as an example, the types of financial independence posts. You know, when I first was doing my research on, hey, you know, what is financial independence? You know, what all entails that? When I was first looking up stuff like that, there was nothing there. And I'm like, there's no way that there's nothing there. So, you know, you would go to some of the well-known bloggers like Mr. Money Mustache, My Money Wizard. I would go to a couple of these guys and I would try to, you know, piecemeal this data, but then I'd be like, you know, I can't be the only one with this question. You know, what are types of financial independence as an example? And so, you know, I, again, I typed that in, I don't find anything. So then I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to write the content that I know would, would provide value and I know other people are searching for. And then if it's good enough, if I write all right enough, if I hit it enough, you know, people will find value in it and Google will reward me. And I think that was the second or third post I posted. And that one became an instant hit. It was, you know, you go to Google, you're looking for something, you know, you might find a Reddit post, you might find something on Quora, but there's no like website that's covering the topic in depth. So if you, you know, in that specific case, I covered the topic in depth. And I think within two, three months, I was number one on Google for types of financial independence. And that brought in a lot of traffic. And so it's really what I'll do is I'll go into Google, I'll search something that, you know, a question that I might have. Like I did one the other day. Uh, I think I posted one a couple months ago about, you know, is buying a website a good investment? I couldn't find any data-based, you know, answers to the question, is buying a website a good investment? I ended up writing the post that I would want to read. I did the research, I did the calculations. And again, that post is doing well. So I go to Google, I see if you know, whatever topic I have in mind is actually, you know, if 
it's been written about, you know, if it's been written about by the Titans, like something about, you know, what is financial independence, right? You know, you're not, you're not going to rank for stuff like that. You have, you're competing against folks who've been in the business for 10, 15 years. I'm not saying that you won't eventually rank for something as, you know, large as that, but it's really tailoring those queries or trying to tailor those questions to things that, you know, don't get a lot of hits, haven't been covered by, you know, Forbes, hasn't been covered by Mr. Money Mustache. You know, you look for those topics that, you know, are niche enough that, you know, people are looking for, but then also aren't covered because to someone big like a Forbes, why would I cover something that small? So even though that's something people are searching for, so it's going into Google, seeing what the results are. And, you know, if I think, you know, based on the crappy results or no results, at all, then, you know, I'll write a post about it. And that's pretty much the process is just, there are tools again, like Ahrefs, but honestly, I've learned throughout this process that Google is, you know, it's the source, right? If if I'm writing to appease Google, I should go directly to Google. So I'll go into Google and I'll do my research. I'll search things. You know, you go to the people also ask, you know, thing that will come up sometimes, Um, you know, if there's already a featured snippet for it, which is that top, you know, above rank number one post, you know, you might not touch that with a 10 foot full. But again, with the types of financial independence, that was a broad enough topic. I'm like, no one's written anything about that. You write about it. And then, you know, again, people have that same search intent is what they call it. You know, people were searching for it and no one was covering it. So, and it does, you see SEO for the first time working, it blows your mind. I mean, you're not going to see it for two to three, four months, as your blog gets bigger and as your authority grows, your chance to rank number one goes up with time. However, those first couple topics that you cover, I mean, I think there's been research done that, you know, your peak, where you hit on Google, where you settle on Google, it's after six to eight months of when you publish. So that's kind of frustrating from an A-B testing perspective, like, oh, did I do good research? Did I not? But I mean, really, it's that easy. I go into Google and yeah, so you just analyze the Google results. I mean, the thing that's really interesting about this to me, you know, zooming out from the fire blog model, you can search beekeeping, you can search gardening, you can search, you know, if your interest, and this is the kind of thing I want to get across this season is whatever the topic is that you're interested in, it could be Dungeons and Dragons, it could be, you know, puzzles, it could be, there's, pick your topic. And absolutely, like I have another URL that I snagged. It's some, it's a blog that I'm eventually going to open up. It's called Tropical Tree Guide, right? One of my passions is, we live in South Florida. We live in a great climate. And, you know, I love growing all these exotic trees like rainbow eucalyptus, ylang ylang, coconut cream mangoes. And so, again, when I go into Google and I'm like how to take care of a rainbow eucalyptus tree or how to grow or what kind of soil to like, there's nothing there. So that's going to be an example of a blog where that's not fire related. But I know <laughs> talking with some of the folks around where we live, I know that there's other crazy plant people like me. So and, and I'm not the only one who has a rainbow eucalyptus or an ylang-ylang or a Barbados cherry. So that's an example of, you know, once I can take care of time value millionaire and I got it in a self-sustaining mode, you know, then move on to the next business. But you're totally right, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons, beekeeping, you know, there's always something that people are searching for. And it doesn't matter what topic, as long as you're passionate about it and you like writing about it, you're good to go. The really, the deeply interesting thing about this to me is, you know, you would think, given that you know, I don't know what the actual statistic is, but the internet has doubled in size every five minutes for the last 20 years. You'd think that every topic has been covered, but it's just not the case. Like you just talked about a specific tree that no one's talking about, right? So there's how many other things could you, even in the fire space where there's hundreds of very successful fire blogs, 
there's still topics that people don't talk about or that no one has cornered the market on. And believe me, Mr. Money Mustache has tried. Like he's written about everything you can imagine, but there's still little nuggets and little things you can talk about that he hasn't covered fully. So that's, it's, I guess the point is the opportunity is still there to start a blog. You know, it's a little bit maybe tighter niche at this point, but can you touch on since it's, since there aren't the A-H-R-E-S-S, that's not one of the tools. But what are the tools that you use that help you in this whole process? It's href is what I use initially. It really is just Google. And WordPress, right? It, Google and WordPress, right? You right. Go, it, WordPress, it's a free plugin. It, that's the blogging term. It's a free plugin yep. that you put on your URL. And okay, now you've got your basic WordPress template all set up. Now I'm going to Google. I'm searching. And, you know, I, I do want to comment on what you just said. I, I don't remember where I read it. I don't know if it was Google actually came up with this. I think they did, but they said something like, you know, 15% or it was a large percentage. It was like 15, 20% of all Google searches on a daily basis have never been searched before. You know, some crazy statistic like that. So, again, when you think, you know, there's not enough room for me or, you know, Who's going to read about Dungeons Dragon, this specific strategy? You would honestly be surprised. But going back to your question, yeah, it really is just, again, you could pay for those tools. I'm a proponent of trying to be lean as possible. Yeah. And can it help you out? Can it teach you using a tool like that? Sure. I mean, you know, I definitely learned a little bit more about like, you know, blog authority and stuff like that. But really, at, at the end of the day, the thing that matters most is you go into Google, you see what information is out there, and if there's not any information covering whatever topic that you care about, well, then cover it. And, yeah. the, and the beauty is you don't have to write a 5,000-word blog post. You know, If you're looking for you know, how to make bees dance, right? A, you know, a crazy term like that, you, know, you don't need to write a 5,000-word blog post. If you can write a 250 to 500-word blog post about how to make bees dance, and you, know, you would be the leading, according to Google, you would be the authority on making bees dance. So you know, right. being able to build on that topical authority and as you're and as you build on that authority as you cover topics it'll become easier to go from you know being able to write about super niche things like you know be you know how bees dance once you kind of built that repertoire with Google because the thing with Google is when you're starting a new blog there's this thing called the Google sandbox the Google sandbox in a nutshell is okay you're brand new to the internet Google doesn't trust you enough in order to put your results at, you know, the first page of Google. So what you have to do is you have to earn that trust. And you earn that trust by building that topical authority by covering these things that haven't been talked about, right? Again, if I were to start a, a tree blog and I, in my first, you know, article is how to just plant a tree, again, there's big titans out there who have already covered that topic. But if I say how to take care of a rainbow eucalyptus tree, you know, that's something that may or may not have been covered. And so then I, you know, if you... In the tree example, right? If I write an article about rainbow eucalyptus and I write an article about a lang-a-lang, things that haven't been covered, well, as, you know, those types of articles, because there's no competition, they come to the first page of Google. Well, people are clicking. Google has all the data on, you know, how long someone stay on your website. They're like, okay, I can begin to trust you. So then as your traffic goes up from covering these super low competition, you know, queries, well, then you enable yourself, you're building that authority, you're building that trust with Google to then write about more competitive topics. So, And you get out of the sandbox. And you get out of the sandbox. You have to give them a, I mean, I like to tell people like, you know, Google is an algorithm, right? It, the algorithm is based on the data points that you feed it. If I have a thousand blog posts covering different trees or covering beekeeping or Dungeons and Dragons, that shows 
you know, that gives the algorithm a lot more data to work with to see if I'm trustworthy enough to, you know, display results for. If I just publish the one blog post on a super competitive topic, there's no way that I'm going to rank for it because what right do I have or, you know, what right. you know, the trust isn't there. Right, right. So let, can we pivot just a second to the business model? So you have this blog, you're outside the, you know, you, you get out of the sandbox, you know, you have a little bit of authority, you're writing for what people are searching for. How does that turn into revenue? Yeah, so from what I'm trying to do from an SEO perspective, like, let me just use this as an example. Let's say that I think that a particular topic gets at least a thousand searches per month, right? So how ads work, which is the primary business model that I'm in, is I go to Google AdSense, I'll grab their ad code, you throw it on your website, so then you have ads on your website. So how Google pays you is they pay you per a thousand impressions or they pay you per click. So impressions is just how many times somebody sees an ad and click is how many times they click through. If they click on the ad, you know, you get a lot, you know, you'll get a larger percentage of that ad revenue. But if they just look at it, you know, you'll still get red, you'll still get ad revenue. It just won't be as much. And so going back, if I write a topic and it gets a thousand page views a month, well, so let's just say that in the personal finance niche, your average per thousand page views, you're going to make $5 per page view, right? So if I were to put one ad on one article and it was looked at a thousand times, that's five bucks. Now, if I put five ads on a article that is going to be seen a thousand times, well, now, again, assuming the average RPM, again, assuming the average RPM of $5, well, then if it's seen a thousand times and you have five ads on it, well, that's 50 bucks. And so what it really boils down to is you write these articles that you know are going to get traffic, you put X amount of articles on them, and then based on how many articles are seen or clicked on, then you, you kind of get a, then you get money from Google saying, okay, you know, let's just say you had a specific ad, you know, you had 100,000 ads served on your website. Well, divided by 1,000, that's, I think that's, I'm doing math on <laughs> live, I think that's 1,000. Right, a thousand times five, so that's five thousand dollars right there. But really, that's what it boils down to: is per thousand page views, you're expected to make X amount of money for ads. And if you can in either increase the number of ads or increase the number of posts that will get the traffic, then the more ad revenue you have coming in. And I actually did a good post. I think I mentioned it earlier about is buying a website a good investment. It kind of goes over some of that math. Where, okay, if you factor in, you know, affiliate sales, which that's linking into Amazon, you know, you're doing a specific product. There's the ad model, which is what I'm talking about. Either way, you can make money. But my, my particular focus is ad revenue because, you know, Google really doesn't, has been putting a beating down on a lot of those affiliate sites. And affiliate site is just, you know, those types of websites that'll post articles like best couches for Florida, you know, best camping gear for you know, Colorado, because, you know, there's really the intent behind an article like that is to try to navigate you to Amazon and try to make a sale. There's no trust. There's no authority. You, I, I'm right. just trying to make a quick buck on you. Versus if you have an info-based article that, you know, in SEO, they call this, a, that's called an evergreen article, evergreen meaning, you know, it doesn't matter if it's whatever season it is, people are going to search for it. It's going to provide value. If you have an evergreen information-based article that provides value to somebody, well, people are going to stick on it longer. People are going to scroll longer. You know, you're going to get more money per ad based on how long they look at the ad. So 
honestly, I think that's the way to go. I, I would recommend people to stay away from affiliates wherever it's possible because it seems like in recent years, Google has been, if you do more affiliate stuff like that, they will, you're more likely to be punished by a Google algorithm versus if you're trying to provide high quality information to, you know, a reader and then just get passive ad, come, ad income that way. So I've heard, I mean, I've heard something similar about the affiliate world. I think what you're talking about is specific to like the Amazon affiliate world where you're right. getting, you know, the revenue per click is like a dollar. Right. Not, for example, like there's like course affiliates, you know, there's mm -hmm. somebody will have like a $3,000 program and that you can be an affiliate for them. And it's more relational than it is, you know, you're trying to get a bunch of people to click on it and click through it to buy an Amazon product for $5, right? So it's, and maybe I could be wrong. I, I actually don't know, but what do you think about the higher end affiliate world? So I don't have too much insight into it. All I'll say on that is I try to stay away from affiliates as much as possible because going back to when we talked about, you know, starting your own side gig and being in control of your income. If you look at what Amazon has done in the last couple of years, they've actually cut their rates on all the different, you know, commissions that you'll get on products from across the board. So, you know, if someone might have gotten a 5% commission on a particular category, let's just say, you know, a watch as an example, in recent years, those same, if I recommend the same article to you a year later, two years later, Amazon has been cutting their rates a lot. So mm. I try to stay away from it because, again, I'm relying on somebody else. If I do a lot of affiliate stuff, even if it's high-end stuff, I'm still relying on a third party, something beyond my control that would affect my potential livelihood in the future trying to live on a blog. So that's the only reason I personally like the ad business a little bit better. I know that there's the rise of ad blockers and, you know, that's just the way it is. But at the end of the day, you know, if you have a loyal audience where you're putting out content that helps them out, you know, they're, people are going to keep coming back. And I don't know, I, again, my thing is I just don't want to rely on anybody else but myself for success. Just real quick, I know that you, you keep mentioning page views and there's $5 per thousand page views. How do you tell, like, how does somebody know how many page views they have? How do they then verify that they're getting the right uh, you know, payment from, say, Google or wherever the ad revenue's coming from? Yeah, so when you install WordPress, I forgot to mention, that it's not necessary, but a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll install this program called Google Analytics to their website. And that it inserts a little bit of code into your header of your website so that it will tell me how long someone's been on the website. They'll tell me, you know, what their journey through the website is. Maybe they came in organically through this one article and they clicked through to this other article and then maybe they went to Amazon or maybe, you know, at that point they ended. WordPress has this plugin called, I think it's SiteKit by Google. Google actually makes it. You just, it's a plugin that Google makes that will insert that code automatically for you because when I started this and even to this day, I'm not a big coder. I'm not a big dealing with a lot of that web development stuff. So I relied on that SiteKit plugin from Google to insert that code automatically. And then from there, it's, you know, you just go into your Google Analytics account and you can be able to track everything in that one convenient location. Got it. I've actually have been in the Google Analytics and I guess I am less of a tech person than you are because that confuses, that confounds me like incredibly. I have mm -hmm. no idea how to read those things. So I have historically worked with some people that have helped me with that. So there's resources out there yep. that can help you with it if you can't if you can't do that yourself. And they're not atrociously expensive. I mean, you, you can pay a lot of money for somebody to manage the stuff for you all the time. And I don't think that's necessary, but... But uh, just getting started, you know, you may want to do some research on how Google Analytics work. You may want to do some of that yourself. You may want to actually get a coach on how to do it as well. And make sure that person is from a reliable source. I know I've heard horror stories around the community where yeah. they'll hire, you know, someone five bucks from Upwork or something. And 
you know, they'll inject malicious code into your website. You don't know any better because you're not a coder. And then, you know, you're wondering why, you know, Google then blocks, you know, penalizes you for, you know, clicking on your own ads or any type of fraud like that. So, and then, you know, they can get into the website, they can delete everything. So if you do go through a person, just make sure it's somebody who you can trust, make sure you, you know, you meet them face to face or they've got a good reputation, they got great reviews because I've read a couple of those horror stories around the internet where I'm like, gosh, dang it, if that happened to me after, you know, all the hours I put into that, you know, your baby, I would be really upset. Totally, totally. Just one last thing in this line of thought is there in terms of just business model and, and revenue, you know, we talked about ads, we talked about affiliates. Is there anything else out there that people use to create a revenue source for their content? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, people can go into, they can sell their own course where, you know, they'll go through a platform like Masterclass and sell their own course that way where that's more direct to consumer. I'm selling a digital product to you or I'm selling a digital course to you. A lot of people will do eBooks. A lot of people will show you, you know, I've seen some people do like SEO courses, like how to write for SEO, how to really up your Pinterest game. So I think that's the other business model that a lot of people can pursue, which is developing your own products and selling them directly to your readers. Again, cutting out the middleman. You don't need Amazon. You don't need another affiliate program. So I know those have really good margins on them. That's a really, if you're really passionate, again, beekeeping, if you really have a course on how to do beekeeping in South Florida, you know, well, people will pay for that, if, especially if that information doesn't exist. So that it's ads, affiliates, and your own digital products. Those are the uh, three kings of monetization on a website. Got it. So you had mentioned in a prior conversation that you were uh, trying to show the world that wealth building isn't as scary as we make it out to be. I think you referenced how it's all just simple math, data and math. Can you explain that real quick? Yeah. So, I mean, I named the website Time Value Millionaire. I named it after this concept I learned. It's really big in the financial world. I'm sure you know about it, the time value money. Mm -hmm. And so the time value money, simply put, just means that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar in the future because of its ability to earn interest. Right. So the whole idea behind Time Value Millionaire is that everyone's a millionaire in the future. You know, we just have to, you know, figure out what the math is to get us there. So there, honestly, it, it really is just simple math. If you look at a, uh, if you Google like a time value of money calculator, we can calculate, well, how much money do I need to save over how much years or how much quarters to hit a specific goal? And if you Google a calculator there, or if you uh, just Google how to do the time value money calculation, it will show you exactly what you need to hit your goal. So again, if you're trying to hit a million dollars, right, and you're assuming a 7% interest rate, it will tell you, okay, based on that compounding interest and everything, this is how much that you need to save from month to month to hit your goal. So I think a, a lot of what I preach is like a lot of people will just throw a random number out there and say, I need a million dollars to retire. I need $10 million to retire. I need $5 million to retire. And I'm like, Really? Do you know that with certainty? So what I usually recommend for people to do is, you know, record your expenses, whether you're doing that manually in a spreadsheet or whether you're using a service like personal capital or rent, understand what your expenses are over like a six to 12 month period, get a good idea on what your monthly expenses are. From there, you'll be able to understand what your yearly expenses are. From there, you'll be able to add a factor of, okay, maybe I want to, you know, have $20,000 more in retirement. Or, you know, I want to spend a little bit more per month to month. You know, you factor that in and then you do a time value money calculation and it will tell you exactly how much you need to save in order to hit your goal. It really is just boils down to A plus B equals C. We just need to plug in the A and the B to get C. Right. I totally agree. I mean, so I, I've often uh, taught like a, 
our retirement planning. And it's like 45 minutes. And in 45 minutes, I can take folks from, you know, this is where you are, this is where you're going to go, this is what you need to save. It's, it's very simple math. I think where people end up with some challenges, what do I assume for my return? What do I assume for my, for inflation? You know, t- today that's hugely up in the air. No one knows what's going to come, you know, and I always, maybe you agree with this. I always say, Hey, let's go back to the long-term averages. Let's right. talk about really right. long-term averages. Let's not worry about what happens this three months or six months or one year, exactly. or even three years, right? Let's look at the long-term averages and plan on that. And we can use those averages to back in with simple math to back into very good answers. And there are good re- reputable websites. Like I get a lot of my long-term averages from Vanguard and Fidelity. Like Vanguard will have, you know, historical data based on, you know, if you're looking for a 40-60 split portfolio, how does that perform over 30 years? You know, and what I mean by that is for everyone listening, 60% stocks and 40% bonds. You know, how does that traditionally perform over a course of 30 years, or maybe you're a 50-50, or maybe you're a 30-70. You know, there are websites like Fidelity and Vanguard who, you know, that's their bread and butter is to understand this data and present it to their customers. And, you know, there are other websites as well, but, you know, you can easily build those those assumptions based on the long-term averages either that they give you or, you know, with a couple Google searches, you can definitely get an idea of what is, you know, what the historical average is. Yeah, I, I like what you said in that there's sort of two steps in my mind. One is, and I think you've said this for three or four times now, you really, really need to understand where you want to go. You need to understand what, what your dreamed of life looks like. And then it's a matter of just simple math. And once you lock in, this is the dreamed of life, and then you do a little simple math, it's uh, you, know, you get your answers. And they're actually really easy answers once you do those two pieces. And again, when someone says, I don't know how much I need to retire, I'm going to say 30 million. And then they do the math on what it takes for a $30 million portfolio. And it's like, then you're like, whoa, I got to save $15,000 a month for, you know, 20 years or something like that. And I got, that's a 15% interest rate. You know, it's being realistic and understanding based on your personal situation. If you have a burn rate, burn rate, meaning you spend $40,000 a year, which you calculated that based on the data that you collected, you as the person who's planning for your retirement, you have to do the due diligence to understand, hey, you know, this is my own unique situation. I'm not going to let the Joneses tell me that I need $10 million to retire because, you know, they assume that, you know, I'm going to have a luxury boat even though I don't like boats or that I'm going to have a huge mansion when I don't have a huge mansion. So it's really doing the due diligence on our part to understand what the data, what our specific data is telling us, using those historical averages from reputable websites to understand what we can expect and then plugging it in in the formula into a calculator and then we get a realistic number on what we need to achieve our goal. I mean, it's that, um, I I know it's scary when we first start it, but I think it's scarier to assume unrealistic expectations on how much you need to retire and then you get deflated and you're like, I'm not going to save anymore. I'm not going to do anything. What's the point? You you need to get that data yourself. Yep. I totally agree. That's good stuff. Hey, I want to say thanks for spending the time with me today. Just a couple quick closing questions. Well, they could be quick. They could take time. So what was the last thing you changed your mind about? From a financial perspective or from life? It could be I was going to the pet shop and I was going to get this kind of dog. I decided to get that kind of dog. So, you know, what? Just we want to prove flexibility and men, mental energy here. So what was the last thing you changed your mind about? So I know this is a hot topic, especially in the wealth world, but um, cryptocurrency, I think I was so against it and I still have a lot of questions about it. But, you know, for me personally, my philosophy is, you know, we have less than 1% of our entire portfolio in crypto. I will never have it more than that 1% because, you know, if I lost 1% of my portfolio entirely, it would be something, you know, it would hurt, but it wouldn't like, you know, kill me. 
So I think that was something that I listened to some folks on, and I'm like, you know what, I'll put a little bit in there. I'm not going to think too much about it. You know, just, you know, that 1% being like a moonshot fund, like something, you know, I don't necessarily believe in it, but, you know, if it happens, you know, you get your slice of the pie. So, you know, I'm a strict tradition, I'm a strict person financially about, you know, I like seeing the traditional cash flow. I like seeing, I like being able to be able to price assets, and I like the historical data that I have on that. But that is something that, you know, I do have a little bit of cryptocurrency. It's not a lot. Again, it's less than 1% of our entire portfolio. But that was something that even though I understand the value, I understand what people are saying, that's something that, you know, I wouldn't subject myself more than the percentage that we allocated to that. Got it. And I'm still a stalwart no on the currency. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I understand the technology behind it. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's funny to see uh, you know people talking months ago or years ago saying oh it's a recession proof asset but then when you see it move in direct correlation with what we've been seeing in the markets lately I'm like okay that's cool so it's like you know again we probably have like 200 bucks or something you know it's really a minuscule amount but I never do more than that it's just your quote unquote hedging your bets Yep, I, I get it. It's okay to speculate a little bit as long as you recognize the speculation right the second thing is, is there anything people don't know about you that you really want them to know. Well, from a personal perspective, I'm probably in the top 1% of people who've seen Hamilton. It's a musical. It's a, if you haven't seen it, really watch it. I, I listen to the soundtrack all the time. But from a serious perspective, I think is, you know, w- one of the reasons why I love the blog that I'm Value Millionaire is I'm very passionate about data. I'm very passionate about not accepting things for face value and looking at the raw data myself. I've gone so far as to email the Federal Reserve and tell them that a lot of their calcula- some of their calculations that I can't remember if it was inflation or something. I can look, go back and look at that. But I found an, an error in how they calculated inflation. I sent them an email and they're like, thank you for correcting this. I, I've talked with them a little bit about their data. Uh, my, my point that I'm trying to make is there is a lot of good data out there. And what I really pride myself in the blog is to be able to navigate all these clunky government websites that you know, it's not the easiest to find data, but just know that the data that it takes me two, three, sometimes four hours to find and clean the data to, you know, again, we're so used to seeing these headlines on, oh, 15% of Americans, you know, can't cover an emergency or this or that. And really just asking those questions, where that data come from? I'm not saying that that data is wrong, but I really go out of my way. I spent a significant amount of my time, probably more than the writing piece, to find that data to present that data so then you can then come to whatever conclusion you want. You know, I remember trying to find uh, personal savings rates data and that was, you know, that took me a couple days to find and clean up, but you know, it's really looking at the raw data and understanding, you know, gleaning whatever conclusion you want from it, but it all starts with getting that raw data that make up all these clickbait headlines and actually looking at it for what it is and making your decisions based on that. So that putting it in the frame, you know, what do you want people to know about you? You're, you're someone that actually digs out the data, which I think is really, really important. And I think you're absolutely right on. There's so many headlines that, are, that they don't lie. Mm-hmm. They just slightly misrepresent. Or, sure. Absolutely. You know, absolutely. Someone, someone came to the story and they had a message they wanted to write. And so they used the data to make their message. They didn't actually look at what the data said. They just said, oh, this is what the data says. That's what they wanted to see. So that's, I think you're right on. And right, I don't have an MO. I'm not trying to, you know, sell you on anything. I want people to just have the da- to have that data. I- I'm not trying to make a clickbait headline if it meant, you know, me being dishonest. It's doing that investigative journalism, I guess you could call it, to get that data, 
and then really presenting it in a way from a data visualization perspective so that people easily understand the conclusions that they can draw from it. Yeah. Tell us, just before we go, how do people connect with you? Yeah, so my blog is uh, timevaluemillionaire.com. That's usually where I've spent a lot of my time. Like I mentioned earlier in the interview, I have been spending a little bit more time on Twitter. It's uh, TVM underscore fire. You can find me on Twitter there, but those are, those are my two homes is the website and trying to try Twitter out a little bit. But if you want to connect with me, send me a DM or if you want to talk about any ideas, if you want to do some data visualizations, if you want to do any collaboration, my email is at timevaluemillionaire at gmail.com. I also pretty good at responding to email right away, but those, that's where people can find me. Great. Thanks, Matthew. It's been a great time. Hey, thank you so much, Jonathan. Thanks for listening. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned, are available at mindful.money. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash mindful money. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. 